Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll say, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to cover the whole chapter. There's 40 verses. We're going to cover this in one, one session today. We're going to talk about marriage. From a very young age, girls begin to think about marriage. Being a dad of girls, it didn't take very long to figure out that was the case. Boys, on the other hand, think about work and things of work like trucks and guns and playing cops and firemen and all of those other things. But eventually, the two begin to merge. And beginning around puberty, young men begin to think about marriage too, or at least the marriage night. Customs around marriage in America are different than any other place. In our day, the day that we live in today, culture is radically redefining what marriage is, and they are failing miserably. There's nothing new. Just as if there is confusion in marriage in our land today, there was confusion in Paul's day about marriage. There was confusion in Abraham's day all the way back to Adam as well. It's a struggle because of the foundation. Two sinners brought together will always make more of sin, not less of sin. It really is a kind of a matter of science. Two of anything, when combined, will never produce less of that thing. Unless, of course, it's a nuclear Uh, fusion reaction, and then it just blows up in your face and causes all kinds of damage. There are a lot of nuclear marriages in, in our culture today. Is marriage a social construction? That's the position that the Supreme Court took when they overthrew the Defense of Marriage Act. That marriage is simply a social construction, and that society can redefine it and expand it or contract it however society wants or in the case of the Supreme Court, they could decide what marriage was rather than the will of the people. For others, marriage is a religious covenant ceremony or a religious covenant agreement between a man and a woman. And that the religious side of things is much more important than the social construction. Others look at at marriage as a means for procreation and passing on, on possessions to their heirs. When I lived in Israel, I would assume that probably the culture has is, is, is not changed at all since I lived there in, in 1992. Couples would live together until they decided to have children. And then they would get married so that the children would have uh, rightful heirs and parents and what have you. And so oftentimes they would live together five, seven years. Uh, and then they would have these huge elaborate weddings where the families would come together. And, and a lot of what you see in Jewish weddings, that was, that was my experience when I was there. But there are a lot of cultures that simply see, uh, see marriage as just a convenient way of procreation and passing on of heirs and, and, uh, and rights that come with marriage um, that other people don't necessarily have. Some are just see marriage as a, as a tax shelter. I know when I was in the army, there were, there were a lot of my fellow soldiers that would, would like to get married, especially if they were getting deployed overseas because they didn't want to miss out on the extra money that would come with, uh, with the extra pay that comes with being married and deployed. Marriage, though, is so much more than all of that. But it, like all of God's creations and God's institutions, has been 
vastly corrupted by sinful man and, of course, the influence of the evil one. So Paul, as he is talking to the church at Corinth, has to help them out with some errors dealing with marriage. And so we're going to look at it. It's a long chapter. There's a lot that's here. We could literally camp on this for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I didn't want to slow us down. I want us to kind of hit this as as Paul has done, as he's looked at these various issues, kind of hit it in overview. And then if you're involved in our link group ministry, you'll you'll unpack it a little bit more there. Um, And and perhaps maybe it'll whet your appetite if you're considering marriage. If you're struggling in marriage, this is a great chapter to come back to. And and there are lots of great resources that draw on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Sin, unfortunately, makes marriage difficult. Sin makes marriage difficult. Not only because there are two sinners that are brought together, but they're impacted by the sinful choices of others, and, 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 and we live in a sinful, bro- broken, fallen culture. And, and sin makes marriage very difficult. It really doesn't take us very far in, in the book of Genesis to figure that out. After Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing that they did? Began the blame game. And that blame game has been going on in marriages and relationships ever since. Well, God, if it was the woman you gave me, well, God, it was the snake that you made. And, and, and from that very beginning of marriage, problems have arisen. The other difficulty that oftentimes comes with marriage is that we can put on false airs. We can appear like we have no problems in our marriages. The truth is, is that there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. There are better marriages than others. But all marriages struggle. And even those marriages that are better than others go through seasons when struggles are more intense and more personal than in others. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that because sometimes we can get in church and we say, wow, they really seem to have it together. Wow, they're, they're great. What, they, ne- they must never fight coming into church. Now I will say this, I, my wife and I never fight coming into church. We drive separately. Sometimes that is a solution, right? I want us to think through what marriage is supposed to be. We're going to kind of look at this from the 40,000 foot view. And look at what Paul is addressing here. What, what we have in chapter 7 and following is, is it seems that the church at Corinth has already written or somehow communicated a series of questions to Paul. And Paul is going to spend the next several chapters answering some of those questions. Now, we don't have the context, whether they were personally delivered by maybe Epaphroditus or one of the other people that have come to Paul bearing information or news from Corinth, whether it was a written series of, of questions that maybe they had that they sent to him. We don't have that context at all. But what we have is Paul's answers to the questions. And so we try to, try to unpack it, go back a little bit and say, all right, what was the exact question they were asking? We know the answer. In some ways, it's kind of like Jeopardy, right? You know, we, 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 we've got the, the question, or we've got the answer, now we've got to figure out what the question is. And, and so we unpack it a little bit, but we don't want to spend a lot of time on there because God and his superintendence and wisdom hasn't preserved that for us. So we've got the answers, and that's what we're going to go off of. So Paul begins this way, chapter 7 and verse 1. He says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Okay, and again, here's, here's a series of, of events beginning with marriage, answering their questions. He says this, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duties to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer 
and come together again so, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this, I say, by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. To marry or not to marry, this first section we're going to look at. Marriage in the Greek world was one of four types. And, and I'm drawing this from John MacArthur's research. Uh, marriage in the ancient world is, is, is very difficult to kind of sort through. So I'm, I'm, I'm heavily borrowing from John MacArthur's commentary in this section to just to give you a brief description of marriage in the first century. There were four different types as he describes them. There are four different types of marriage. The first was slave marriage, or uh, in, in the, if we were to loosely translate the Greek word that is used there, quite literally means tent companionship. And, and, and tent companionship was generally reserved for two different slaves, a man and a woman, who, who simply lived together. But the problem with this is, is that they were still slaves. And so this relationship was subject to the whim and the mercy of the slave owner. If you did something inappropriate, he didn't like you, he could take you and remove you from that marriage. And he could assign your wife or your husband to somebody else. He could say, well, I want them to be married now. There, there, was, no, there was no say in it. There was no, uh, you know, how long it lasted, um, what the relationship was like. It was, uh, it was just two slaves that were property of, an, of another owner who brought them together. The second type of marriage, as, as is described, is, is kind of similar to what we have in our culture today, which was common law marriage. If a couple lived together, cohabitated together for, for a, a, a time over a year, they were just simply considered married. There was no ceremony, there was no license to sign, there, were, there was nothing, they just simply lived together and they were just considered marriage. It was a, kind of a common law marriage, like what we have in our culture. Our culture is more a seven-year based than, than a one-year basis. The third type of marriage in the ancient Greek culture was of a father selling his daughter to a husband. Oftentimes, um, girls were seen as property of their father and he would use his daughters as a means of, uh, of expanding upon his social standing. And so if he had lots of daughters, it was a great opportunity for him to take great strides forward as he sold all of them off to these, uh, to these men and, and it was an ability for him to expand his own political status, um, you know, and, and, and they were not sold for love. Right? It was purely a means of, of a commodity that I have that I can use to get better in society. The fourth type was almost exclusively restricted to the patrician class. Now, they, they were the high, the elites. They were, this was a more highly elevated wedding. Now, what's interesting about this type of wedding is, is that most of our modern weddings are based into that Greek patrician class of weddings. Our modern weddings would look very similar today to those of this class of, of families. Both families were involved, for example, in this wedding. It wasn't just the father selling the, the, the daughter and then the, the husband did whatever he wanted. Both families were involved in the planning and the execution of the wedding. They had maids of honor and best men in these weddings. There were exchanges of vows that, that happened between the husband and the wife. There was even exchanges of rings, but the ring wasn't worn on what we call the, the ring finger. It was worn on the middle finger of the left hand. Uh, the bride would oftentimes be veiled, and uh, there were bridal bouquets. There, were, there was even cake involved. Many of our modern wedding customs are thousands of years old. 
In fact, what we can gather is, is that the Protestant wedding ceremony developed out of the Catholic wedding ceremony, which was grounded and based in the, in the Greek or Roman perspective of, of marriage. When we think of where Corinth was at, as Paul is addressing the subject of marriage, probably all four kinds of marriage were, were seen in the church. We know that there was a significant uh, number of slaves that were in the, the Corinthian church. We're going to talk about slavery later on as we get into this book and, and how we, even in this chapter, about how we are to, how to, to serve and to, and to work at, if, if God calls us to, as slaves. And so one would assume that if there were slaves in the church, that some of the marriages that he's addressing would have been these tent companionship kind of marriages or slave marriages. Some of them probably would have involved people who had lived together. In fact, when we looked at chapter 5, when it was the, the, the section dealing with the man who, would, who had his father's wife, the, the, the description that Paul gives there seems to almost imply the common law kind of marriage. They, they probably were not officially married because the, 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 the Greeks would have looked down upon that, but they were simply living together. And, and for all intents and purposes of the law, it was just as if they had been married. Of course, the, the, the father selling daughters to husbands was a, a big part of Corinth because it was a very upward mobile society and, and probably there were people in, in the church there, uh, women who had been sold by their fathers uh, into marriage and, and, and maybe some of them were in very loveless marriages even. And of course, there would have been some that would have been in the higher class that would have been involved. So probably Corinth without having all the details, probably had all kinds of marriages that were involved here. Not only these kind of marriages, they probably had multiple marriages, they probably had divorcees, they probably even had some spouses, that, some marriages that had multiple spouses in the relationship at the time. So Paul is kind of addressing a lot of these issues in this chapter. Marriage in... Um, marriage and, and, of course, sex that goes with marriage was, was a subject that was a, a, something that the church here at Corinth really wrestled with. Early asceticism was starting to rise in Corinth. And, and early asceticism is interesting as it began to develop. There, there are two different tracks that asceticism uh, and really Gnosticism begin to, 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 as an overarching principle, begin to, to develop. Early asceticism began to see that the, the body itself was a problem. That the sins that we commit, whether they're lust, whether they're murder, um, uh, theft, anything that we commit is done in the body. And so the logic from a Greek mind said, well, if, if the sins that we commit in the body are bad, then it, it, by extension, the body itself is bad. And so what began is this early asceticism is that people would begin to see the body as bad and anything done in the body was bad. And so let's, let's subject it or discipline ourselves and try to, to subject all of those impulses that we might have. And so I'm, you might crave chocolate cake. So as a form of asceticism, swear off eating chocolate cake for the rest of your life. You might really like a, you know, a nice lamb burger. So let's, let's swear off eating meat because the body is bad. And, and, and if, 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 if we're so hungry and all we can think of is a nice juicy lamb burger, let's not eat lamb burgers ever again. Or you, you understand, right? Anything that, that it, we enjoy, we find pleasure in, if the body is bad, we need to subject ourselves and push it away from us because the spiritual is what is what's most important and they're thinking 
And, and as an extension of this, there began very early in the church this movement of even disparagement of marriage. That if one of the, the, uh, the, the physical things that drive us is our, our biological sex drive, that we need to even suppress that. And, and, if, and if that means swearing off marriage so that we can show the world how spiritual we are and holy we are, then we should do that. There even began this idea that, that if you are celibate and single that somehow you are even more superior because you are even able to control those biological drives in your own body. This developed, of course, in Catholicism to the point of the vows of chastity or the idea that, that nuns and priests were wedded to the church and that somehow they were a, a more spiritual segment of, of Christianity because they had taken these, these vows of celibacy or chastity. The problem is, is that this is a very unscriptural position from this chapter. And, and I think it's led to the mess that the Catholics are dealing with today. So from, from a Greek perspective, this asceticism and early narcissistic branch said, listen, celibate is better. Right? If somehow you can subject your physical drive and, and suppress that, you're more spiritual, you're a better person. Now on the other side of the church, right? so that's the Greek side of the church, on the Jewish side of the church, they looked at both Genesis chapter 128, where God looked at man and, wom- and woman as he brought them together. He said it was very good. And then Genesis 2, where God said it's not good for a man to be alone, so let me make a helper suitable for him. They look at chapters 1 and chapter 2, and, and from their perspective, is, is that they saw that, God's, that God insisted that man must be married and multiply. Be fruitful. From their perspective, they'd look at Genesis 1 and 2, and, and, and so it developed this way. That God's curse was seen on those who were either unwed or childless. Lots of illustrations of this in the Old Testament. It didn't take very long for it to develop. Remember Sarah. Right? Sarah's barren. Well, why is God cursing me? What, maybe there's another worker around here, how that God can somehow bless us. Why? Because the blessing of God was seen if I had heirs. In fact, what was one of the promises given to Abraham? Your descendants will be as, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand upon the seashore. Well, how does that happen if my wife is barren? We can go on other parts of the Old Testament. Uh, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth in the New Testament. It was this, this idea that, that if you weren't wed, that if no one took you as a bride, no one wanted you, like Leah, or that you were childless, that somehow God's favor wasn't upon your life. To not be married, in fact, disqualified one from leadership from a Jewish perspective. So from a Greek perspective, okay, celibate is better. That's the best thing, you know, if you can control your body because the body is bad. From the Jewish perspective, no, you've got to get married. If you want God to bless you, if you want God to be honored, get married, have lots of kids. Gentiles seem to look at the struggle with the flesh and all things fleshly or bad. Jews looked at, at this as a means of God's blessing. And so in the midst of all this is this church Corinth with all kinds of crazy Gentile wedding customs. You've got Jewish leaders in the church that are insisting on marriage. Gentile leaders that seem to be insisting that no singleness is the way to go. So Paul weighs in on this matter. A couple of things, to marry or not to marry. First of all, he says celibacy can be good. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The word touch here is obviously euphemistic to to talk about sex. He says it's good for a man 
it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But what he does not say is it is best for a man not to touch a woman. The words are important here. What he is implying here is, is that being married or unmarried is not a reflection upon one's status with God. That being unmarried does not make you somehow unblessed by God. Just like being married doesn't mean that you're blessed by God either. Celibacy can be good. But celibacy can also invite temptation. That's the, the balance that he says. He says, but, right? And buts are really important words, right? And we says, okay, it's good, but, okay, don't just stop there because that's what our Catholic friends have said. Look, look, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it's good not to touch a woman, so let's make all of our, our leadership celibate. But he goes on, he says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. All right, now that's a command, right? Is it a command? Well, no, because Paul is going back and forth. He says, it's, it's okay here, it's okay here. Celibacy can invite temptation. I would say this, that the more immoral a culture, the more difficult it is to resist lust and compromise. Right? The more immoral a culture is, the more difficult it is to resist lust and compromise. We've talked about Corinth. Corinth was a wicked, vile place. Right? Corinth was not a place where you say, well, everyone here is you know, on their best behavior. No one's you know, uh, cheating on their spouse. You know, everything is appropriate. Everything is above board. Everything is honest. No, this was a wicked, vile place. You know, I mean, like, probably like Las Vegas on steroids. And it was not a place where, where if you were single, that the temptations were not going to come into your face on a regular basis. And so, so Paul says, listen, it's good if you can do that, but you know what? I also recognize you live in a wicked, vile place, and temptations are going to come. The more immoral a culture, the more difficult it is to resist lust and compromise. The Song of Solomon says it this way, don't awaken love until it is time, or don't awaken, awaken passion until it is time. And when we live in an immoral society, when it is in our, is in our face, it is probably more likely better for us to marry than it is to not marry. Celibacy is, can be good, but celibacy can also invite temptation. Celibacy, verses 3, 4, and 5, as he writes it here to husbands and wives, celibacy is wrong for those who are married. It's wrong for those who are married. Now, what he has is a description here about husband fulfilling his duties. Recognize these are all euphemistic terms here, that Paul is, in a very PG way, is talking about sex inside of marriage. And, and what he's talking about here is, is that, that there, there, pro, there seem to have been, and again, we're trying to, not to read too much into it, but it seems to be that, that even among those who are married in Corinth, there was, this, there was a push that, okay, you're married, all right, so let's still swear off um, sex inside of marriage. Let's be celibate. Even though, yes, you've been married and, and, and you're no longer a virgin, let's just at least, you know, just cohabitate together but, but not come together. Because, again, if the body is bad, what, 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 a, what a thing we should do? We should subject it. But what Paul says here is he makes it in very strong terms. He, he, makes, he, he makes celibacy inside of marriage sinful. It is sinful to withhold and or demand sex inside of marriage. And I think that his balance is rather interesting here because, because he's talking to a Greek culture where the man, is the man is the head of the home. 
But what Paul says here in a very clear authority is, is that the man does not have authority over his own body and the woman does not have authority over her own body. That there is a mutual submission to each other when it comes to sex inside of marriage. That they are given to each other. That they are to honor one another. A number one priority for husbands and wives should be each other. It should be each other. But celibacy, as he balances this out, he's going back and forth. He says, in this way, in verse 6, I, I, as a concession out of a command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. Celibacy can be a gift from God. Celibacy can be a gift from God. God gives good gifts. God's gifts fulfill his purpose. It is not a requirement that everyone get married. It's not a requirement, that, not, a, not a demand that, that if you want God to bless you, that you must have, have a married, must be married and have lots of kids. God sometimes does bless that way. But what Paul is saying here is, is that it's okay if God has not brought that person in your life. Don't just grab the first person who is willing, who looks at you twice. Right? It's okay to say no, to have standards. That it's okay to wait until God's timing is just right. When I was looked at, looking up some research on marriage, I, I ran across uh, a woman by the name of Linda Wolf. She's quite the woman. She is in the uh, Guinness Book of Records as the woman with 23 ex-husbands. She officially is the, the living person with the most husbands. So I'm just reading a little bit about her. Her last husband was a, pub, was a publicity stunt. She married a, a man, a Baptist minister by the name of Glenn Wolf, who was 88 years of age at the time so that he could set the record for having the most wives at 29. Linda said um, she was in love with the romance of weddings more than being married. She couldn't remember all of her husband's names or even the order of all the marriages, but she did say that her first and longest marriage of seven years was the nicest one of all. Her one piece of advice is to get married once and stay married. Hollywood, of course, is filled with marriages of convenience or power. Jaja Gabor, Mickey Rooney, Elizabeth Taylor were all in the eight-marriage camp. Marriage is, is so cavalierly entered into and out of in our culture that the current divorce rate is somewhere between 42 and 50% of marriages. And, and it varies depending on who you're reading. But what is, what is seen is that the more marriages, the more likely they will end up in divorce. In fact, someone who's been married three or more times, the, the divorce rate goes up to 75 plus percent. Some other stats is I, I looked at this, 43% of children live without father involvement today. 50% of children will see their parents divorce in their lifetime. Divorce rates are, are slightly going down only because cohabitation is going up and the choice to remain single is going up. Marriage is, is in tough times in our culture. And of course, the church is not immune from the impact and the feeling the effects of that. So Paul gives some guidelines. So listen, that's okay. You don't have to rush into marriage. You don't have to, to get into marriage just to be blessed. But if you're in marriage, it's okay too. And if you're in marriage, be all into marriage. He goes on. He gives some more instruction about some guidelines about Christian marriage in verses 8 and following. He says, but I, say to the, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have, have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn 
with passion. It's better to be married than to succumb to passionate lusts. Now, there are guidelines that he gives as to who to marry. Keep your finger here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about the relationships we have. Now, this is a very broad perspective here um, because he talks about being bound together with unbelievers. And the bounding here, by the way, refers to business relationships, contracts, um, close friendships, but of course it would also apply to marriages. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what an agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God's perspective is, is this. If we are followers of Jesus, uh, he, we are not to be unequally yoked. All right, what does that mean? Well, in, in the very base mean, it means this, is that we should not be married just like we shouldn't be in business or under contract with somebody who is not also a believer just like us. But I think it goes a little bit further than that. And my counsel as is, is couples come to me is, you know, it's more than just, you know, do they love Jesus? Right, because you're bringing two together. Are you walking in common together? And, and if one says, you know, I, I, I believe in, in um, uh, you know, um, I, you could, I don't know, all kinds of crazy stuff, I, whatever it is, right? If I believe that we should have, you know, unlimited number of kids and I hate birth control of any kind. And you got someone else that says, I might be open to one child in like 30 years um, by adoption if they're 18. Uh, that's a, that's a, a thing that we would say, okay, that's an uncommon bond, right? Because you've got one that wants lots and lots of babies and you've got one that likes to see them kind of in the shop window. And, and so it's important as you think of... of uniting together that there, it's more than just okay he saved i'm good to go and i could ignore all the other issues that, that you want to pull together not pull apart that god is uniting us together in a common bond so there are guidelines of who to marry we don't marry though to just quench our lusts now, that's not what Paul is saying. And Paul is not saying, well, listen, if, if you're a passionate kind of guy or a passionate kind of girl and, and, and biologically you're driven, just go marry somebody. That's not what he is saying. Just because uh, we have a bed partner does not preclude lust from still happening within us. So if we don't deal with the, with the, the brokenness of our heart, just getting married doesn't fix things. In fact, it usually makes it better. Uh, think of an illustration this way. You know how many wives David had before he met Bathsheba? Six. And he still had a problem with lust. Right? Just because you get married, maybe even multiple times, does not mean that, that the heart is still not prone to sinfulness and brokenness. And I also think that it's unfair to expect our spouse to discipline our own sin nature. It's unfair of me to say, I'm married to Brenda, so therefore she should you know, curb my lust or my, my desire to, to be with lots of girls. That's unfair for her. I need to discipline myself before I said I do to her so that when we're married, I still may struggle with lust, but I, I, it's not dependent upon her so that if somehow I'm unsatisfied with her, well, you, you made me do it. You made me stray because you didn't keep me on the straight and narrow path. We don't marry just to quench our lusts. Immorality can be an extremely disabling. Dis- immorality can be an extremely disabling sin. Now, all sins can be addictive. 
and disabling. You know, you, you might have, you might struggle with stealing stuff. In fact, they might even throw a label on you and call you a kleptomaniac. It doesn't really matter what it is. It might, might be a pencil at work. It might be $1,000. And the amount doesn't matter. You just, you, just, you just like to grab things. You don't even think about it just as part of you. That can be a very disabling sin. It, it, can, it can cause you to not be employed. Right? It, it can cause all kinds of struggles and trials in your life. All kinds of sins can be addictive and disabling. But sexual sins, immorality, can destroy a person in many, many ways. And Paul says, listen, it's better, if you are struggling with it, it is better to find a godly mate than to struggle with this that will, that will set you aside and destroy you. Paul says, you know, it's better, I wish that all men were even as myself. And there's a lot of questions. Okay, what is Paul's status? This is my position. I, I believe Paul's status is of a widower. There were words that he could have used to describe if he had never been married. All right, he does not use those words to describe himself. Uh, he, in fact, he says, I wish that all men were even as myself. E- each man has his own gift. Um, it's good that uh, for the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain even as I am. The antecedent to the even as I am seems to be to the widows. The unmarried would be, by the way, those who are no longer married through divorce. Unmarried and never married are two different and separate words or ideas in the Greek world. All right, so he's talking about not virgins, not people who have never been married. He's talking about those who were previously married who are currently not married, the unmarried. And he's talking about widows. All right, so he's going to follow himself, he's going to be under one class or the other. Widows, of course, can be both sexes whose spouse is no longer living. And it seems to be that Paul falls under that category, not to the unmarried. He chose not to remarry. As a Sanhedrin member, a Pharisee, he would have, one of the requirements would have been for him to be married. Because again, from a Jewish perspective, if God's blessing is upon you, you're going to be married, you're going to have kids. So for him to, to function as a spiritual leader in Israel and the Sanhedrin and as a Pharisee, one of the very basic requirements would have been marriage for him. As a good standing Jewish leader, it was required. But he says, listen, I, I wish that you could be where I'm at today as a widow. He's chosen not to remarry. His ministry, by the way, probably precluded him from having a wife. As he's traveling from place to place, getting stoned here, getting you know, you know, beaten over here, getting thrown into prison, there's no mention of a female companion with him. There's no mention of a wife with him. And, and, and you could imagine that that kind of ministry would be very difficult. That kind of itinerant ministry in the first century where there's so much persecution and so much stress, from Paul's perspective, probably, not too much psychoanalyst, it probably was easier for him to remain unmarried than it would be to have a wife who was either left at home and he, did, and he saw her very infrequently or he brought her along and she was subjected to the same persecution and trials that he was facing. Someday we can ask him, what was your reasoning there, Paul? Why, why did you choose not to, to get married? What was going on there? But it is better to be married than to succumb to passionate lusts. He goes on, he gives some instruction to Christians further on. He says, Christians should not divorce, verses 10 and 11. He says, but to, marry, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. 
Christians should not divorce, but if they do, they should remain single. He gives an interesting phrase here. He says, I give instruction. It's, it is short of a command that he gives here. I would gather from this, looking at other passages in Scripture, that if God allows the marriage to dissolve for any reason other than the biblical reasons that you should remain as God leaves you, is this fair? Is it easy? Is God sovereign? Can God meet our needs? Those are questions we need to work through and wrestle through. This seems to imply that divorce for any grounds other than those allowed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 would invalidate one and, and require you to stay single. Jesus allowed valid reasons for divorce. The valid reasons in the limited cases were for adultery and abandonment. All right? And and. and that seems to be, as Jesus gives his teachings, that, that if, if divorce happened because of adultery or abandonment, that you were relief, released from all vows, that you were free to remarry. But what Paul says is that he, he expands upon it and he says, all right, if, 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 if Christians are divorcing, and the implication here is just, just to divorce just because they don't like each other, irreconcilable differences, there's no reason other than that, that they are to remain single or to remarry their spouse. That's a hard thing. It's a hardship. But I think what Paul is, is really trying to get at is here is that marriage is a big deal and it's worth fighting for. It's working hard. And if we are, are both Christians and we both have experienced forgiveness from the Lord, that we should be able to forgive each other. We should be able to find some middling ground in these issues. But what about a Christian who is married to an unbeliever? He answers that question in the following verses as well. He says, but to the rest I say, not the, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And the woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does he mean here? Well, uh, pulling it back and examining what I think Paul is saying here is just that is this, that Christians married to unbelievers should remain married to them if they want to stay. It's an opportunity for the Christian spouse to be a witness to them and to their children. It may not be easy, but God can use you there. The implication, by the way, seems to be that these were people that came to faith after they'd been married. Because 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that if we are already a believer, that we should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. The Christian young person who is not married yet, that if you're dating somebody, if you're engaged to somebody who's not saved, you need to walk away, run away from that. Because it's unequally yoked. So this seems to be dealing with people, they've been married maybe for a long time. One of them comes to faith in Jesus, the other one doesn't. So what do we do now? Well, if, if, if they're willing to let you stay, let them stay. The word sanctify and holy used here are not the technical terms, but, but used more generically here. You're not saving your husband or your children just because you're saved and, and they're not. But it's an opportunity for the Lord to use you. Why, why would they stay? Why would they want to go? Well, life after salvation should be vastly different than life was before. I mean, think about it. Maybe you and your spouse, you got together and you were just the party animals. You went to every party, you did everything you could. Think in ancient Greek. Every temple prostitute, never a problem with it. Anything that was culture going on, not a problem at all. And now one of you gets saved and their life radically changed. Okay, I can't do that anymore. What we used to do, the fun things on Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, we can't do that anymore. I don't enjoy going to the lake and watching you get drunk because I don't drink anymore. 
It's not as much fun for me what we used to do anymore. And so you could imagine that post-salvation, an unsafe, hey, this isn't the girl I married. This isn't the guy that, that I said yes to. But some would be willing to, to stay. Now remember again, this was a, a socially highly transient society. There's a lot of movement going on here, even when it came to marriage. And you could imagine in that society where, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, my wife, my husband's not as fun as they used to be. They're not the life of the party. It's not helping me out. Let me just get rid of this dead weight. Better to me not be married than to be married to them. But Paul says, listen, if they're willing to stay with you, then stay with you. Stay there. Let God use you as a light and salt in that place. Verses 15 and 16, he talks about those who want out, though. He says, if, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? Christian married unbelievers who went out should let them go. The implication here is interesting because what, what he implies is that there is no fighting and no begging. If your husband or your wife says, I want out, you simply let them go. You say, wait a minute, I thought I'm supposed to fight for my marriage. Not according to this passage here. If your unbelieving spouse wants out, let him go. Why? Well, the reason he gives it in the text, he says, God has called us to peace. Uh, that we are to be instruments of peace. That includes, by the way, dealing with alimony and paternity or maternity issues. That we are to be men and women of peace. We say, well, wait a minute, I, I, I get my rights, I should get... No, God says, you know what? Go the extra mile. We could take this and go into Matthew chapter 5 when, when, when Jesus talks about someone unjustly forcing you to go a mile. He says, go two. They take your coat, give them your shirt. Right? That, 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 that's how we're to treat those on the outside. Why? So that we can be salt and light. We can be a testimony to them. Maybe in some opportunity, even in a divorce setting, we might have an opportunity to say, wow, what was different about them? Why, why didn't they fight everything? Why did they say yes to everything I demanded? Why, why did they let these issues go? For us to say, you know, because I'm called to be an instrument of peace. It might cost me a long time. I might never socially get, overcome this. But God has called us to be instruments of peace. What's interesting in this setting is, is that marriage is allowed in this case. He says very clearly, you're no longer under any bondage. The vows are, you're released from these things. So what does he say so far, up to this point? All right? He says this, if there's two Christians, two believers in Christ... That they shouldn't divorce, right? In, uh, except for, you know, Jesus' exceptions for abandonment or adultery. But if they divorce for any other reason, they don't like each other, they, they don't get along anymore, that's fine. Let them divorce, but they need to be, remain single. Or they can reconcile together. That's dealing with two Christians. If we're dealing with a Christian and an un, unsaved person, if they're willing to live with you, stay. Be a testimony to them inside the home. But if they want out, let them go. But even in letting them go, be an instrument of grace and peace. Marriage is not a curative for problems in your life or relationships. It is better to marry slow than to marry quick and live with regrets. Don't marry him because he got you pregnant. Unless you would marry him before sinning with him. And there, was a, there was a lot of trends like, well, you got pregnant, I guess you got to get married. Don't, don't compound two problems. Don't make sin worse by marrying the wrong person. We need to elevate marriage as the church. As parents, let's stop enabling poor decisions by our kids. As unmarried, 
If some of you are here unmarried, seek out others' advice and counsel on potential spouses. Somebody who is not emotionally connected to the situation that might be able to see things better. Don't let culture dictate or control an institution created by God. God meant marriage to be a blessing, not a curse. Verses 17 to 24, we see contentment in our calling. In some ways, it's almost like a paragraph that Paul takes out, but remember, our calling affects our home, right? Our satisfaction and our status in life affects our view on marriage and what's going on in the home. So he says this, he says, Only as the Lord has assigned each one as God called each. In this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone become called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to also become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he was called while free as Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Contentment in our calling. We must learn contentment in where God has placed us. Contentment will never come because we got married. There can be joy. There can be happiness in there. But contentment is an internal thing within us. Contentment is not driven by external circumstances. Should we never leave our work? Is that what he's saying? Well, God makes his will clear. We, we should not manipulate it of whether we leave or not. Look for the, you know, when it comes to, I think what he's saying here, you know, look for the pull towards something and the push away from something as God's, as God's leaning, that we need to learn to discern the call of God and the will of God. And by inviting others, counsel. Sometimes it's hard to know, but, but God says, listen, be content. Until I move you on. Rash decisions, you know, like quitting because you didn't like what your boss told you this morning, are, are signs of immaturity. That we learn to work through those things. God wants us to obey him above all else. So when it comes to social justice and revolution, God is, God is more interested in saving men than he is in saving the planet. Okay? We don't, won't make things right or just. That's his job. And when I know when I my own personal experience, when I've tried to make things right or just, I usually just make things worse. So I have to learn to let God fix those things. When I've worked for, for bosses that have been unjust or, or ungodly, let, let him fix those things. He does a much better job than I do. I just mix, mess things up. But God also assigns us our place in life. Contentment is a is a way to worship God and learn to trust in him. Contentment is internal. No one can make you content. You choose to be contented. I think that's important when it comes back to this idea of marriage. You know, all of us can find reasons to be dissatisfied with our spouse. We, we can find all kinds of reasons to be discontented. Well, you didn't make my favorite meal. Well, you burnt my toast. Well, the laundry wasn't done. Well, you didn't mow the yard the way I like it mowed. Right? There are all kinds of things. We call that nagging, right? What is that? That's just discontentment. I'm not happy with something or something. I'm going to blame you or something that you did or didn't do. But the reality of it is contentment is something that we choose. We can choose to be contented. I think that's why this section is here in the middle here where, where Paul says, listen, be con- if, you were, if you were uncircumcised, that's okay. If you were circumcised, that's fine. If you were a slave, if you were freed, learn contentment. Ultimately, contentment comes from remembering who is in charge, God. 
He's the one who brings contentment to us. The last verses that he focuses on here is he comes back to singleness. So, he's, so he said, listen, singleness is good in verse 1. Then he talks about marriage and he talks about contentment. And then he brings it full circle back to this idea of singleness in, in verses 25 and following. Christian singleness. I, I think there's some, some lessons we can draw from here as we, we work our way quickly through this section. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such trouble in this life, I'm trying, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brothers, at the time that is... The time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. There is tremendous pressure to conform to society standards, and we all experience that. The present distress that he describes here, it's a number of ways that, that, that there are a number of interpretations here. Some see it as kind of the end times, you know, apocalyptic kind of vision of the world. Um, I don't think that's the case. If that was the case, he would have identified it much more clearly. He's very good at talking about you know, the signs and times of Jacob and those kind of things that really referring more to, to end times apocalyptic kind of thing. So, so what is he referring to? I think it's one of two other options. One might be <coughs> the state of the culture in that day. Right? And in that day, certainly, the state of the culture was corrupt. In many ways, it's much like ours. Today's, today's view that marriage is a, is a social construct and we make up the rules. And we're almost at the point, as a church, of having to ignore society's rules for marriage. I just That's fine, you can define it your way, IRS, federal government, Supreme Court, whatever, but we're going to define it God's way. Uh, in, in Paul's day, certainly there was this tension between what God, godly marriage looked like and, and what the world's marriage looked like. But I think probably what, if I'm leaning anywhere, it's probably what he's referring to is the rise that he was seeing in persecution. Certainly, certainly in Corinth, there were people that were already kind of had been pushed out of Rome that were experiencing persecution of the day. And I think that's most likely the illusion here. And, and the point being this, that a single person has a lot less to worry about than somebody who's married or somebody who has children. When it comes to, to society's pressures, the, the, the more people that, that, that we have to take care of, the more pressures we have uh, when it comes to society. Because of the, 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 the pressures that they were experiencing, that, that Paul says, listen, it's okay. It's okay for you to remain single. It's okay for you to marry, but it's okay for you to remain single too. I think as parents, just as a, as a matter of uh, of of application to your parents, we need to stop pressuring our kids to date and marry and give you grandbabies. Right? That's undue pressure. Because I think sometimes kids absorb that and they say, well, I guess I should marry whoever's willing to take me because mom wants a grandbaby. And, and, and there's this, this unrealistic pressure that we say, well, yeah, but marriage is good. And marriage is good. But you know, marriage is full of problems too. And, and just because you're married doesn't make things any, any easier. God... God may not have it for your kids to be married. He may ask them to remain celibate. So, stop being sappy romantics. You know, no relationship has warm, fuzzy feels all the time. In Christianity, marriage is actually more pragmatic than it is passionate. 
that the reason we should look for a, a, a mate is, is that, that our ministry would be better with them than without them. Because our lives are not about us, it's about glorifying God. And the number one question we should ask when we're dating somebody or engaged with somebody is this, do they help me serve God better or not? And if the answer is not, run away. Do it kindly, but run away. It's not about passion. The reality of it is, is that as we get older, the hottie with the six-pack develops a keg, right? We all age. We all get older. Now our culture tries everything to erase the wrinkles and the, you know, do all the stuff and make you look like you're still 20, but you're not. And that's okay. You know, I... Uh, you know, I, I say to, you know, to, to Brenda, I'll be careful, she's in nursery, so I'll say to Brenda, you know, I don't, I don't care that you don't look the same as when we got married because uh, those scars and wrinkles and gray hairs were part of our story. I don't want them erased. I don't want you to look like you don't have any gray hairs anymore. That, that just tells me you, you want to erase our history together. See, it's all about serving God. It's more pragmatic than it is passion. That doesn't mean that there's no passion. It does not mean that we can't be madly, deeply, physically in love with our spouse. We should be in the right context because God has given us that to each other. But that's not all life is. There are a lot of hours and days between those passions, aren't there? And the older we get, the more those periods of time get bigger and bigger. Getting married does not solve problems. First part of verse 32, he says, but I want you to be free from concern. Getting married does not solve problems, but invites them in. I mentioned this earlier. You know, two sinners bring twice the amount of sin. And then they reproduce, right? And, and so you think, wow, it's going to be great. I'm going to get married to her. He's going to be, you know, my knight in shining armor, and everything's going to be awesome. We'll make house together. We'll, we'll cook dinner. We'll have, you know, go to the movies all the time. It'll be awesome. The word for um, trouble here is that I want you to be free from concern, is the, is the Greek word thlipsis, and it simply means a pressing together under pressure. Okay, it's used of, of, of molds. Okay, when, if you've ever done any kind of woodwork, you know, you've glued something, you, you, you bound it together with some clamps. That's the same idea here of, of the concerns. And that's kind of what marriage is, right? I mean, two of you smashed together, forced together. You've got to share a bathroom now. You've got to share a closet or a, or a, or a, or a, or a, a dresser, a bed. You know, when you used to sprawl and spread and throw things around, and all of a sudden you got someone else doing that and it's in your turf? Marriage is not, does not solve problems. It brings more problems in. Marriage involves conflicts. It, it demands compromise. Uh, it, it, there is sacrifice. There is adjustments. That when you're single, you avoid all of those things. If somebody is struggling with lust, marriage can make it worse. Because now, not only are you still lusting after other people, you think, well, I'll get married and I won't have a problem with pornography anymore because I got married. I can look at the real thing. I don't have to worry about the fake thing. But here's the problem is that now all we've done is, is we still have a problem with lust and it just makes it worse because now you've broken vows, promises you made to somebody, and you've also probably offended or hurt somebody, especially when they find out. It just made it worse. It didn't make it better. Getting married does not solve problems, but invites them in. And not all hope is lost, you know, all hope is lost here. So one is married, 
concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Singleness allows one to focus more on heaven and less on earth. I'm just going to touch on this, and this, this is one you can wrestle through. Jesus makes it very clear there is no marriage in heaven. And I think if we think about it from a logical point of view, it, it does make sense. Practically, who would you be married to if you were married more than once? If you had been widowed? If you have been divorced and remarried? Which one would you choose? Would you choose husband A? for the first year and then go to husband C for the next three because you really liked him a little bit more? You know, what, 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 who would you choose from a practical point of view to live with? <clears throat> I also think, from, from another perspective, would it be fair for somebody who was celibate their whole life, a virgin, died, would it be fair for them to have to remain single for all of eternity? And we think about that, we think, well... Well, God will meet our needs there. Well, he'll meet our needs both whether we've been married in this life or not. God will meet our needs there as well. There's no marriage in heaven. Intimacy will be primarily with God, all right? but it will also be with everybody. Now, we think, again, of intimacy because we're so physically driven. We think of intimacy and we go immediately to sex. All right, but the intimacy in heaven is not physically driven. It's spiritually driven. It's a different level, a deeper level of intimacy. We'll not be driven there by our biology to procreate uh, or the need to psychologically connect with somebody because we'll connect with everybody, but ultimately we'll connect with God. Intimacy will be primarily with God, but really with all. And so here on this life, what he's saying is that service opportunities are much richer for those who are unattached. The opportunities are there. Now for me to, 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 to... do something for the Lord if I feel compelled to the Lord. I've got to factor in Brenda's, uh, where she's at. I've got to factor in my kids and where they're at in station of life. And, and you know, as, you know, when they were younger, that was a lot different than they are today. But I still have to factor those things in. I've, my, my attention is divided. You know, I can't just say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll drop everything and do that. I, I'll be happy to do that. I've got to ask, does Brenda have something else planned for me today that I need to do? And that's okay, that's how God has designed it, but our, our, my attention is divided, and, and when we're married, we have to think about our spouse, because again, my body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to Brenda, just like her, hers belongs to me. Marriage does not prevent great devotion to God. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that, that just because you're married, yeah, you, you know what, you're kind of half divided. He's not saying that at all. Because even in our marriage, we can bring great honor and glory to God. But in the same sense, he is not saying that singleness does not demonstrate great devotion to God either. Just because we're married doesn't mean that we don't love God, and just because we're single doesn't mean we do love God. Okay? Because there are a lot of bitter, angry people at God because God hasn't let them find the right spouse for them. But the opportunities for both are there. The last section, 36 to 38, is kind of a little confusing. Depending on, all of your translations are going to translate a little differently. Let me just read from the New American Standard. If any, man, if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. 
but he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. It's a little confusing because we don't understand fully all the context of what Paul is saying here and the, the cultural ramifications. So let me just pull it back out and, th- and try to draw the principle out here that fathers should allow their daughters to make marriage decisions freely, to not force his decisions upon her. There seemed to have been a segment of, of this society, probably the Greeks, who saw celibacy as the high ideal to, to, to force their daughters, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you're celibate till the day you die. I'm going to force my morality upon you. And it, that it's a difficult, again, passage, and almost all the translations kind of take a different slant on it. But I, I think that's what Paul was getting at, that there was this element of this patriarchal society that often viewed daughters as a bartering chip. The fathers would commit daughters to marriage or to service, and the daughters had no say in it. And I think what Paul is doing here is elevating them to full daughter status in God's, God's eyes. That the, the, the woman did not have to wait until her father gave her permission. That if she was of, of, of age, that she could make those decisions of, of her own. And that the father, even though he may have made promises and vows that God was not, was not, did not have to force the matter, that he could let her make that choice on her own. And he winds up verse 39 and 40 this way. He says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. One can choose singleness after the death of a spouse. We are free from the promises when a spouse dies. So don't ever hold it over your spouse, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you know you're dying, to say, hey, I hope you don't ever get remarried. Those promises are gone. Uh, you are free from those promises. Why? Because they don't care anymore. They're in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. They're not going to care about the promises they made to you or forced you to make to them. But even in that, we are to seek a godly spouse. We're not just supposed to marry anybody just because we're lonely. Paul had learned contentment and singleness. And, he's, and he says, listen, that's what I chose, and you can find contentment and singleness as well. It doesn't require you to be married to find contentment. You can find contentment in whatever state you are in. Marriage is a great gift from God. But you know, celibacy and singleness can be too. Marriage is not the highest ideal. Someone not married is not half a person. They're not incomplete. God will meet our needs, all of them. And if God calls us to singleness, whether early in life or late in life, God will meet our needs, all of them. Married couples, you have an obligation to meet your spouse's needs. Not doing so, according to 1 Corinthians 7, is sinful and wrong. But in the same sense, we are not to force ourselves or our desires on the other either, because your body doesn't belong to you either, it belongs to your spouse. And we need to walk that line carefully. And I think out of all of this is this, contentment is the key. Is God enough? Can we accept, accept our status as he desires? It is okay to long for marriage, but in his time and in his way, are we contented? Because simply getting married, being able to have sex, is not going to bring you contentment. Having babies is not going to bring you contentment. Contentment is a choice that we make. 
And we can find contentment in whatever status that we are in because it's a choice that we make. So wherever it is, whatever you're at, ask yourself this question. Am I contented? Am I contented with my wife? Or am I longing for something else and looking out and about? Am I contented with my status in life at work or where I'm at? Am I willing to trust in God that he will meet all of my needs?